so many memories have come flooding back. I put this song on repeat, just crying my eyes out. It made me feel so bloody alive. This song really nails the feeling of nostalgia for a place. And we all just stopped talking and just stared at the radio. Like, what is that? It's part of the noble genre of songs by women about masturbation. I love it. I love that song so much. the box. Meet people through their music with Ash Berdebez on FBI. Massive thanks to Alex Pye for taking us through another wondrous morning. And now the show on the air is out of the box. And A.H. Cayley is my guest today. She's a curator and host of Confession Booth, which has absolved her of all sins, or at least made them public. And she's also written for Rational Fear, The Lifted Brow, Mess and Noise, Women of Letters. And you might recognise her voice from Backchat, because in 2012, she started and hosted FBI's Politics and Current Affairs program alongside Catherine Kelleher, and it still runs to this day. Welcome and out of the box. Hello. How you doing? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I definitely didn't just wake up. <laughs> yeah, you, you look fine. So what a legacy, Cheers. might I say, because I mean, uh, FBI didn't even have a news program before Backchat. Is that how it started? Like, how did you pitch it? Yeah, so uh, Catherine Kelleher, Cat Cole, um, the listener may know her as, uh, we are very good friends and she started doing radio training at FBI. Uh, I had already been broadcasting on FBI for a little bit but didn't have a show. And one day Catherine posted on my wall saying, I had a dream last night that we were hosting a sassy current affairs show. <laughs> And we tagged Caro, the program director, and we're like, can we? And then uh, shortly afterwards, she needed some fill-ins over the summer. And so she she was like, yeah, I want to put the two of you on air and see how it goes. And we kind of did like a proto-back chat where um, we played, uh, I think it was during the Get Clover Bill when the uh, New South Wales government introduced legislation saying that you couldn't be a mayor and a member of state government at once, and it was effectively just to minimise Clover Moore's rule. And so we played Kanye West's power, and we were like, this one goes out to Barry O'Farrell. You may get Clover, but you haven't got Sydney. Like, it was this <laughs> real sort of, um, we're passionate kind of thing. And then shortly afterwards, Cara was like, yeah, I'd love to invite you to pitch that show you had in mind. And Backchat, uh, it took five months of development. Because obviously it was a very new show for FBI. It was the first sort of real non-music show. Mm. And also covering news and current affairs actually puts you in a position where you might defame someone or say the wrong thing. Oh, yeah, we came close a lot. Um, (laughs) In the early days, it was a real sort of fly by the seat of your pants kind of show. And also, like, we had a real focus on uh, comedy and satire in those early days, which, um, you know, the show has progressed and grown and turned into this different beast these days. And it's doing it amazingly. Like, I don't think people realise how much work is involved in a show like that. Yeah, I mean, for an hour, there is so much prep that goes into it. You know, it's mm. not picking songs, which is hard enough in itself. Yeah. But also, you know, getting people to make packages. In fact, you gave me my first broadcast. Yeah, You're my first I did. moment on air. Yeah, That's you, right. You played my story on forced adoptions. Oh, I remember that. I yeah. Remember, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You did some beautiful interviews with some uh, people who'd been impacted by that in the 60s. Yeah, yeah, that was remember. the first thing I'd ever played on radio. And I remember oh, your voice you cracked a little bit on air because you'd just listened to it and it was moving. Yeah, it really was. It really was. And um, we were very grateful to get to do Backchat to have a lot of that sort of stuff on there and create things that were meaningful. But yeah, it was a weekly show and we were all volunteers and, you know, I had a full-time job when we started and um, and th- so there were a lot of sleepless nights. It was a very stressful show to, to make and, and to sort of bring together every week. And I actually want to ask you, what does a morning look like back in the early days of Backchat? What is the, the Saturday morning when everyone else is kind of, you know, sleeping Ugh. in? What are you doing? Oh, well, it's. I was living with Heidi uh, a few months after Backchat started. I moved in with Heidi Pett, who obviously hosts the show now and hosted it with me for a while when I was still on there. And so it would be like Heidi forcing me to get up. I had sort of a still undiagnosed sleep disorder for the beginning of it and then diagnosed for the end of it. And it was my fault that we had to start at 11am because when we did that, that little, when Catherine and I did that little show, I was like, oh wow, 11am is great. Like usually I miss mornings on the weekend, but if I'm forced to get up, then I get a morning. And then (laughs) for the next, you know, two years, yeah. And for the next two years was just hating myself for choosing that because yeah, we, you know, sometimes get out of bed at 11 and race in to finish off 
packages or something huge had happened in the news the night before and it's not like we had the resources of the ABC to be able to just sort of like calmly get that done. In those so days you had no resources. I mean, there's we a little didn't have money any. behind it now. You yeah, there is a little bit of money behind it now. We got funding um, shortly before I left the show. But um, yeah, like we had we had absolutely nothing back then. And uh, and so, I, you know, those mornings were come in here, run across the road, get a cheese and bacon scroll, have a coffee, run on, uh, notice that all the best finished a little bit earlier, so which we always forgot. So we had to find a tune to um, bang on before the show started. Every so much stuff was last minute, and it was just so stressful. And what did you usually <laughs> use to start off the show? Then we always used Royal Headaches, Really in Love, because it goes for a minute forty-two, and because we'd always forgotten that we needed a, a song beforehand, and it was like, oh shit, um, oh, look here, it's on my laptop. Let's just do it again. I'm sure no one will notice, kind of thing. So, <laughs> so often, it's like you know when you listen to an album enough, and if you listen to one song in isolation, the next song just starts playing in your head. Yeah, yeah. I will always have that vintage back chat intro starting after. Really in love. <laughs> Always. Amazing. You listen to Out of the Box on FBI 94.5. A.H. Kaylee is my guest today. You're tuned in to Sydney's finest radio station, FBI Radio. My name's Ash Bertabez. My guest in the studio with me today is A.H. Kaylee, who brought on that track, Royal Headache, Really In Love, one minute and 42 seconds that song goes for. Exactly. Convenient length. Yep. I mean, I guess the length of the song is responsible for how much radio play that song got, which is great. But um, you you did start off uh, back chat with Catherine Kelleher, mm-hmm. and then you had to you know find a point at which to kind of leave the show what made you realize that you should probably move on? I had a breakdown. Yep. I just completely burnt out um, and I had a breakdown. And it, it was never a like, oh, okay, I think maybe it's time for me to say farewell. It was just one week. I, I couldn't do it anymore. And uh, so I had sort of like a real crisis meeting and was like, hey, guys, like, I just need a break. I just need like maybe a couple of months off. Um, and then like, I'll come back after that. I just, I need a bit of a break. And then after those few months, I think it ended up being about three months. And after that, I realized that I didn't want to come back, which was hard when it's something that you love and you created and, and meant a lot to you. But I was just, I was awfully mentally ill while I was doing the show and didn't fully realize it. And I was exhausted and I wasn't getting enough sleep. Um, you know, we do like late nights working on packages or having to completely rewrite the show if something big happened on Friday night. I, di- I didn't have Friday nights for a really long time. And of course, it's because back in those days, we didn't really have adequate structures. It was like, okay, let's do this kind of show. But then not fully understanding how much was involved or being very ambitious about it. Yeah. And the thing is, like, when it comes to actually doing something on air, you don't want to present something that's rubbish. So you put all your heart and soul into exactly, it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and and like, you're running on adrenaline. Yeah. And after a while, that adrenaline goes away. And so because I was so sleep deprived, I'd be on air um, worried that I was going to forget a major politician's name. Because um, on radio, as you know, you can't do the uh, um, 
oh god what's the tip of my tongue what's that word you can't do that and so I'd get on being really anxious and terrified because I was so sleep deprived my brain just sort of wasn't working properly and as a woman like we I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit here we used to get some awful texts on the text line maybe back chat still does I don't know but you know could someone please shut this bitch up just play some flume um, wow yeah really? feminazis um, you know you asylum seeking seeker loving bitches you love terrorists all that kind of thing and so as a woman being on air it's an unfortunate thing that if you're going to be speaking in an area that requires any expertise or really just speaking at all being opinionated um, in general yeah you have to prove yourself a lot more than a man would and so I would also be terrified there thinking that I was going to slip up and you know give these guys an opportunity to see that I didn't know what I was doing when actually I really 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 did um, I was very proud of myself and all the work I've done I was 22 when I pitched FBI's radio uh, FBI's politics show um, which was you know which was massive and, and I did it so young and yeah so I was so proud of myself and it meant that um, not in a not in a um, uh, you know uh, up myself kind of way because it took a lot of years for me to learn that I should be up myself um, so it was always <laughs> in this really humble like I was proud but don't say so kind of thing but anyway yeah so I just I left back chat because I my body just gave up on me one day um, and I came to realise that over the last few, over like a couple of months before I had that breakdown, that I hadn't, I couldn't remember the last time I'd enjoyed doing the show. That's rough. Yeah, which is devastating because that show was my life and it meant so much to me. And, and I mean, in community radio, you're not getting paid for anything. Exactly. You're doing it because you love it. Like there are, there are two kinds of people in community radio. There are people who do it because they want to kickstart their career which is legitimate, and there are people who do it just because they love it so much. And I think I sort of fit kind of somewhere in between. I absolutely adored it. I also, you know, this is something I really wanted to do with my life. Don't anymore. Um, broadcasting, yes, but not political broadcasting. I think I've, mm. I've sort of closed that chapter. But, yeah, so it's something that you do just because it gets you out of bed in the morning and it was getting progressively harder to get out of bed just yeah. because I was absolutely shattered. Uh, I was doing a full-time job um, at that time. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a yeah. bit. Yeah. When, I, when I had my breakdown, I, I ended up sort of quitting that, um, you know, effective immediately kind of thing. But for a long time with Backchat, I had a full-time job and then another full-time job, which was Backchat. Because we is, didn't have resources yeah. to make the job easier. It's part of the wider story about young people in the arts and communications. Absolutely. Um, people get really, really sick and, and they burn out, but you don't. Uh, recognize it soon enough because we in in the arts we have this culture of doing as much as you can and you know everyone there's, there's no money in the arts now so everyone who wants to make a living out of it is vying for these few spots that um, that aren't really there yeah and so many people in the arts do burn out we we don't address mental illness or mental health um, as well as we should yeah. And there's an absurd amount of years between, you know, leaving school or leaving university and actually getting paid work in the arts. Like oh, I think totally, the gap is totally. much bigger than other professions. And the, for the boomers, it was so easy. You'd leave high school or university, which you got for free, and find yourself an entry-level job, which you could, you know, save up enough money from that to own a house by the time you were 24. I started working as a professional writer when I was 17, when I was still living at home. I started writing um, reviews for Mess and Noise. Um, and and then, you know, always sort of had office jobs or other jobs, but uh, was doing writing at the same time. I'm 26 now, so that's been eight, nine years now working as a professional writer. And it's only in the last two years that I've been earning enough to not have to do anything else, to actually be able to pay my rent and then have other stuff going going on at the same time. The first time I appeared at the Sydney Writers' Festival, I was on the dole and I couldn't afford a drink Wow, at the event I was doing. Wow. And that's not for lack of talent. Yeah, obviously. absolutely. And I was on the dole because it was shortly after this period where I got really sick and for a long time I couldn't work. Mm, rough. Yeah, so having a sleep disorder compounding with being in the arts probably yeah. leaves you... Yeah, and just yeah. having a tendency towards the insane as well. <laughs> Certainly. Just, I, just a little bit of that. Look, I'm a writer. It's literally my job to feel things too much. So. <laughs> I love it. So let's let's reflect on the good times with with Backchat because there were very many. I mean, I remember, you know, I had a few very great mornings listening to you guys in, in the studio, just hanging out the old washing on a Saturday. <laughs> I loved it. It was my favorite. It's my favorite show. And I want to ask you, what were kind of some of the highlights for you from when you were doing Backchat? Wow, there are so many that I 
might actually have some trouble recalling them all now. Well, you've made some good good friends through doing yes. back chat. Yep, Anthony. Hello, Anthony. Anthony Albanese. Yeah, uh, we, um, as far as I'm aware, no federal politicians uh, have um, ever in the history of back chat come and live in the studio except for Anthony. I may be wrong. Maybe something's happened in the sort of more modern days since I left. But And he came on a week before the federal election, which Labor had no chance of winning, while he was the Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. He came in live in the studio. Wow. Yeah. And we sort of, we kept in touch uh, through, you know, Twitter. We both love rugby league. And then later on, I was able to get him to come and when I was uh, co-hosting Fire Up, filling in for Stephen Ferris, I was able to get Anthony on the show um, for a whole hour. He came right from the morning show where he did his sort of weekly segment with Christopher Pine into our sort of, you know, let's face it, quite dodgy little studios. <laughs> his, his mic stand was broken, so we had to rest it on top of a cardboard box. Um, and uh, friendship Support is, the station, by the way. Yeah, please. Sign up as a sponsor. FBIRadio.com. Yeah. Bring some dollars, we'll get some mic stands yeah. and get some more federal politicians in here. I was just about to say the number, and I can't remember the number now. 833-22945? Yep. Yeah, oh, boy. Wow. Yeah. Some things never leave you. Some things never leave you. I can't remember <laughs> Long Division. But yeah, and then so when Anthony was... Um, asked to DJ at the FBI Smack Awards, I uh, was picked as his chaperone and basically spent the whole day sort of hanging shit on each other and having a wonderful time and joking about how it was my job to find him Dexies and Groupies. I was making those <laughs> jokes. He wasn't. I was making those jokes. But he has a great sense of humour, so he liked them. Uh, and just hanging shit on each other because he knows very well that I'm a Greens voter. But <laughs> And then why do we have this track by UV Race? Uh, yes, so after we... This is that kind of like cheeky personality thing that we tried to inject into Backchat. After we interviewed the then Deputy Prime Minister of Australia, I asked him if he would forward announce our next song, which was UV Race, Raw Balls. <laughs> FBI 94.5.
out of the box. Subscribe to the podcast at fbiradio.com slash podcasts. Just got a text through on the text line on 0409945945 from someone who's just tried to call up to become a supporter to get us some better mic stands mm. for our federal prime minister guests of the future. Yeah, uh, as opposed to a state, state prime minister. Yeah, you know what I mean. Anyway, so um, they tried to call uh, a number that we gave out, and we gave out a number that is only functioning during supporter drive time. Yeah. So we've Sorry, got the right bad. number here. No, it's fine. It's uh, So the number you want to be calling is 833-22900. Thanks so much for wanting to become a supporter of this fine station. Every dollar you put into it makes us make cooler and better things. Yeah, that oily rag that we that we work off, just a whiff of it, uh, gets just a little bit more oil on it. <laughs> Gross. Um, so right. we were talking a moment ago about what you were doing while you were doing back chat. You were, I remember you very clearly working a job that sounded really cool and really relevant to yeah. someone who was trying to run a news program. So what did you used to do in a working day? Uh, I used to, I need to be careful what I say because I don't want FBI to get sued. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I probably shouldn't have said that now. I've given people a heads up. Um, uh, Half I, I <laughs> monitored the media. Uh, so I had to sort of go in every day, full-time job, and I had a schedule of the same shows and radio shows that I had to listen to and effectively transcribe, um, which meant that um, 
politicians and that kind of thing were able to order transcripts or audio or video. Um, also, like even just stuff where um, it was uh, someone criticising their policies, they were able to get that. Also, companies, brands would be able to see how they were being reflected. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically, it was the kind of thing where it helped people shape their brands, uh, but also helped people jump on top of um, outrages and stuff as soon as they if their company's done something wrong and they're talking about it on Sunrise they can jump on it uh, straight away I'm sure there are many other um, things it's used for but essentially when but it boils down it's to let companies and people know if they're being talked about and in what way they're being talked about yeah and so effectively my um, uh, schedule each day was I had to watch all three hours of Sunrise um, yeah. Then I had to do a bit of the uh, big sports breakfast with TK and Slats. Quite like TK, don't care for Slats. Um, <laughs> stuff like Sky Business News, uh, which got surprisingly interesting once I started to understand it. But I also had to listen to Michael Smith on 2UE. Oh. Um, yeah, which was, was horrible. Uh, later, once I got a promotion and was moved on to the state government team, I had to listen to 2GB all day. Oh. Um, while doing the rest of my work. So I wasn't monitoring anymore, but you had to keep an ear out for it in case any of your clients were mentioned and, you know, yeah. oh, my God, they've done this. And look, it sounded cool and abstraction, but now that you go into it, it's, it doesn't sound as great. So what were some of the, I mean, because you'd, you'd be covering specific stories as well when yeah. there's something in the news a lot at a certain time of year, a certain incident happens, mm. you'd have to cover certain stories. What were some of the stories that really stick out to you as um, Monzi covered? You became very personally invested in everything. Uh, even though you didn't actually have any interest uh, any connection to it. So uh, often, like, trauma would uh, pop up. Um, so I remember um, things like uh, the Queensland floods. We all had to work overtime during the Queensland floods. Uh, there were so many things. They all sort of kind of fade together. I remember when I started, because I, the other thing is you'd be working there for months before you properly met the rest of your staff members because we were all had headphones on, eyes at the screen, typing. And I once recorded it one day, just the sound of the room, and it was eerie, just this, like kind of thing. I hope that got picked up on the mic. Uh, if it didn't, I made a noise. Just think of like something typing. hella creepy. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, so I, you know, went into the kitchen one morning to get like a 9.30 instant coffee. I'd been awake for three and a half hours. And uh, I remember a staff member just saying, I was like, hello, I'm new, got a job. <laughs> um, this job will break you. That's what they said to you. That's what he said. And I was like, oh, I guess this person's just a bit of a negative Nelly. And then shortly afterwards, and, you know, I'd only just started, it was the morning of the Christmas Island boat tragedy. Oh, God. And watching, you know, footage of people being lost at sea and um, uh, the residents from Christmas Island giving interviews and talking about how they, they heard the screams bouncing around their lounge rooms. Um, and then having to listen to 2GB with commentators talking about, you know, how these, almost jokingly about how these terrorists have come, um, people calling up saying they got what they deserved or that kind of thing, and it just, it was, and you couldn't switch off. That's the thing, you could never switch off. You had to keep listening to it and being infuriated Mm. and just numbed every day. Oh, my God. So what did that do to you over the long term? Um, Look, over the long term, it also... I mean, that's the kind of thing that it really got you down and also the fact that I was starting work at 6am every day with undiagnosed sleep disorder, so I was just uh, shattered a lot of the time. Later when I, all the time, uh, would literally cry over spilt milk. I remember once my partner who I was living with at the time, he came home one day. uh, I would finish work at about two and he came home when he finished at five and he said, hey honey, how was your day? And I just started crying, Um, even though it was quite a good day, I just... Anyway, um, and then sort of later on, it, it just it wasn't. Um, I got promoted, so I didn't have to do the monitoring anymore. But the uh, oh, I can't think of the word I want because of that whole sleepiness thing. The culture there wasn't great. Okay, and so you weren't. People weren't really making sure that the that people, their that colleagues were okay. People were okay, and then also the fact that so there was a huge round of redundancies, but it was just for financial reasons. So you still had to do the work. So I was doing three people's jobs on an entry-level salary, not taking lunch breaks, and there was no end in sight. With a sleep disorder while also trying to do back chat, the yeah. politics and current affairs show on FBI. Yeah. That and, sounds and like a nightmare. And confession booth as well. So and yeah, confession it was a horrible booth. nightmare. Uh, and then one night, I, I spoke about this in my Women of Letters piece. I got asked to do um, Marie Cardi and Michaela Maguire's uh, literary event, Women of Letters, a while ago, which was a huge honour. And basically one night I broke down in the cereal aisle at the Newtown uh, Food Works and I came home and I just couldn't bear the thought of going in there the next day. But I had too much anxiety to do another sickie. 
Um, so I thought, well, instead of chucking a sickie, you know, great Australian tradition, I'll just chuck a suicide. And I ended up calling Lifeline and um, spent a night in hospital and sort of even after that, the next morning, from my memory, I quit the next day, but actually I rang up and said, I'm going to need a two-week break and you need to pay me for it. And then after a few days, it was like it was similar to the back chat thing. It was like, wait, no, I can't go back there. So yeah. that was pretty brutal. I mean... <laughs> Hello, I hope you're enjoying your Thursday, Arvo. It's very, very good to actually call Lifeline in that circumstance. And I was actually just looking for the number online. Uh, but the oh, internet's yeah, we'll out grab, here. We'll grab so it in a sec. Once again, sign up as a supporter. We'll get better internet as well. Amazing. Yeah. So, and once you, maybe before you've donated to FBI, chuck a donation to Lifeline as well because they do incredible work and um, they, you know, they run on donations. So we'll get that phone True number that. for you in a little bit. Yeah. And so when you, actually, I've got it here now, finally, 13, 11, 14 mm-hmm. for Lifeline. If you ever need it, whack it in your phone. You might need it. Someone else might need it. Yeah. And after that experience, I did back chat that week. You you went on air. Yeah, the next oh God. the next morning. You'd been like in hospital, and then you decided yeah. to. I'd been in hospital all night, um, and then went home, went straight to sleep, slept all day, and then we had our editorial meeting that afternoon, that evening. Is it actually? Is maybe it... I missed the editorial meeting. I can't remember. But so that was a Monday night that I stayed there, and I did the show on Saturday morning. Is it more out of a feeling that you had to do the show, or more out of a feeling of I can't be alone with my own thoughts right now? Um, no, look, I trusted myself. It was a, it was more of a, uh, an ideation thing instead of a doing, it was like a brain snap. It was, you know, effectively a cry for help kind of thing. Um, so I was fine in that sense, not fine, but not in danger. Um, it was a sense of loyalty, a sense of duty, because we all had so much work that we needed to do if one person sort of dropped down. It the other, the other two, so Heidi and my our producer Andrew Rhodes would have to pick it up, and that was stressful, and I couldn't do that to them. Um, and then also, there's this this sort of thing of like, well, if I quit my show, who am I? Like, what have I got? I'm just a bloody normie, kind of thing. <laughs> oh, so, which God. is a dumb way to think about things. Yeah. So we we just heard a song a moment ago mm. from God. It's called. It was called My Pal. And can you tell us a little bit about why you wanted to bring that song on? My Pal was the last song played at Good God Small Club and Jimmy played it twice. And we were all uh, sort of anyone who was part of the Good God family, as I was, stayed until the very end. We were in that club until about 5.30 in the morning, bawling our eyes out in the, the last few songs because he chose them well, um, but just dancing furiously. It's like our bodies were rioting against the tears in our eyes. Um, yeah. And our next track is Ladybug. Yes. So tell us a little bit about a little bit about this song and, and a little bit about your time at Good God Small Club. I mean, because you came to Good God off the back of having been in that job yeah. that was uh, utterly heinous from the sounds of things. Yeah. I ended up on the – I had to go on the sickness payments from Centrelink, uh, which is impossible to live off. You know, once I, yeah. once I paid my rent, I had like $15 to last me a fortnight. And so mm-hmm. even though I was very unwell, I realised that I just had to get a job and I wanted something that wouldn't need brain energy, something menial. The menialer, the better. So I got in touch with Levs, uh, Andrew Levens, who I sort of only knew peripherally at the time, but we were Facebook friends as often the way, and asked if he needed a kitchen hand at the dip. Um, in Gulgod and he did so I started a couple of weeks later and I went in there thinking that I would just sort of go in do my shift go home you know I'm not not there to make friends like it's just a workplace thing whatever Mm. and instead I found a family Uh, and when I went in there you know obviously I was very unwell but hiding it and so hungry so hungry nine nights out of every fortnight I'd force myself to go to sleep so I wouldn't feel hungry anymore and so then working in a kitchen was great because there was food there that I could eat and take home (laughs) Um, chips yeah but uh, I very much kept to myself and I didn't uh, I would enjoy the music that was playing in the kitchen but I didn't ask about it because I'd be worried that it was something really entry level and I'd like show myself to be this uncool dude who doesn't know much about hip-hop be like oh who's this it's Kendrick Lamar. Exactly. <laughs> like yeah, yeah, be, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then gradually as I became more comfortable and just sort of realised like, wow, this is a really special place and I'm at home here. Um, my friend Jake Brain, Brainy, he used to put on all these bicep mixes by the, um, the sort of house DJ group Bicep and this was a, a track that was always in that mix. And uh, that was the moment where I finally went, oh, my God, I love this. What is this? And it became a bit of an anthem for how much we love the place and each other. A.H. Kaylee is my guest on Out of the Box today. My name's Ash Bertabez, and here we go, a bit of Bumblebee Unlimited, Ladybug.
Unlimited, Ladybug. Uh-huh. Oh dear me. Great track, hey. How I sick love is that, it? I love that someone was just like, I'm just gonna mess with these voices here and make a Ladybug disco yeah. track. Well, their whole album, I later found out, Bumblebee Unlimited. They did put out an album. I think it was in the 70s or something. Like clearly disco era. And um, the whole album was insect songs. <laughs> I haven't been able to find any of the other tracks, but made a great all the songs are like, yeah, insect. Oops, excuse me, little burp. Uh, <laughs> insect puns and. All that kind of thing. Well, it's good to have a little bit of disco because you were saying, oh, am I getting a bit heavy? Yeah. You know? Bloody oath. You, you worry about that this as is... someone who's made a bit of a career in comedy. Yeah, this is the uh, the Robin Williams episode of the, uh, what the? Mark Ooh, Moron. WF yeah, with yeah. Mark Moron. Nearly said it. Um, yeah, Tears of a Clown. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's kind of good to hear people, especially like people who've been in on, on your radar in a media position, you're like, oh, that's so cool. They're doing such a cool thing. Like, that's what I thought. I was mm. kind of like, man, Age Kaylee's so cool. She's just like, nothing's nothing's wrong in her life. She's got the perfect life. She's doing back chat. Oh, if only I could be there. She's got a sick job. So it's kind of nice, actually, yeah. pu- pulling back the curtains a little bit and going, yeah, no, but what's really going on in there? Is this all as easy yeah. as it looks? And I think you have a responsibility if you're working in the arts, to be honest about that kind of thing, because there were so many people I looked up to who totally had their life together. And I... You know, oh God, they're doing all these many things. I need to do all those many things. I'm sure it'll be easy. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and having someone who you look up to, being honest about that. Um, and, you know, often it actually just gives you something to connect with. Yeah. Yeah. We actually have a song coming up from UMI as well, and it's called If We Can't Get It Together. And I mean, I couldn't get it together for a long time, <laughs> could I? And that's that's not the reason you bought this song on. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, I mean, like, Tim Rogers, for example, he's very public oh about God. about battling with depression, and I feel like that's a really good thing to know for people who like love UMI and just go, oh, you're the you're the ultimate perfect. I put you on this like amazing pedestal. Nothing is wrong in your life, yeah. kind of thing. And then it's like, yeah, no, but like seriously, I, I'm I'm amazing in spite of these things. Yeah. So, what's your love for UMI like? Uh, look, I had to have a UMI song in here because when I was a teenager, I just adored that band so much. Um, and that's still the way. I never really grew out of them. Uh, I wrote a, a piece about UMI when they were doing the uh, Hi-Fi Way Hourly Daily tour, which uh, I real I was asked to do it by an editor, and then I realised about you know a few days before the deadline, I was like, Christ, why did I do this? Like, I can't possibly write this. Why? Um, because it's it was beyond words. I thought what I felt about this band. Um, and I didn't want to sound like a daggy fangirl or anything, but it was true. And I wrote in that piece that it's the sign of a special writer when it feels like they've written just for you. And that's always been Tim Rogers for me. Um, I don't know why, um, but no one has ever made me feel so understood. And 
if we can't get it together, I saw a couple of versions of this song on Spotify. Yeah, and yeah, are, we gonna take, are we going to take the uh, live version or are we going to take the uh, the recording from the original recording? Look, let's go the original recording, but I'll tell the story of the live version. Or do you want do you want to wait until after? What's your you're the host? Oh well, no, I think we should we should just <laughs> say it now. Yeah. Um, in in the live version, I actually uh, I recognised a. a little change had been made and yeah. what happened what happened here because Tim eventually found that thing that you wrote you did write it despite your anxiety about writing it yeah yeah and a lot of uh, a lot of the stuff in that piece was about sort of finding home through this kind of music uh, my journey which as a writer uh, home is a massive point of inspiration and reflection for me the concept of home uh, yeah I got an email shortly afterwards from Tim saying you know <laughs> yeah saying you know like I possibly creepy to get into. I, I often feel like perhaps it's a bit gauche for me to tell this story um, because it's quite a personal thing um, for him as well as for me. But a couple of years ago, I asked his consent to talk about it at a National Young Writers Festival event. So I feel like maybe I have implied consent to keep going with it. Go um, and he wrote, you know, I hope it's not creepy to get in touch, but my ma sent me an article you wrote about my band. She got quite emotional and I think now she finally understands what it is that I do. He was 42 years old at the time when he wrote that. So that was massive for me wow. as a as a fan and as a writer to have that moment, have two people sort of connecting over each other's art. Um, and, yeah, and he invited me to attend the show as a guest, which was great because I was very poor at the time and I wouldn't have been able to go otherwise. And then in, and he said to me in the email, he said, uh, you know, good luck at the show. Oh, have fun at the show. I hope you enjoy some of it. And I thought he was just being self-deprecating or having fun with the words. <laughs> uh, and then there was this moment in If We Can't Get It Together, the lyric is the 470 to Circular Key, which was my bus service when I first moved to Sydney, um, a present in your pocket for the TAB. And he changed it to a present in your pocket for A.H. Cayley. Oh. Yeah. And it's now out on vinyl and DVD. <laughs> Bless your soul, Tim Rogers and A.H. Cayley. It's If We Can't Get It Together on Out of the Box, FBI 94.5. To get up the bond for an inner west flat It worked for anybody if it wasn't working for a dad She's practicing saying I do or I will Cause she don't know how to tell what she's going off the bill My curtains up to certain that he'll talk about her ass While she clings to his photo like a piece of broken glass We can't get it together today She's looking for his heart while he stares in the Dad is not his ex-girl is a slut But he'll be yours forever if you just get it together We can't get it together if we can't get it together Is it ever gonna be just you and me? So they met on Tuesday at the town hall Stepped to get an 8 by 10 photo And a wedding date set We might as well do it next week Cause we've met everybody that we're ever gonna meet Get it.
You're tuned in to FBI Radio, Out of the Box is the program on your radio at the moment. And I've had A.H. Kaylee in for the best part of this hour. Hello. Hello. And uh, you and I was a track you heard there. And yeah, I feel like um, they. you said before they really capture the sound of the inner west. A yeah. very, very home kind of vibe. That album uh, is the sound of the inner west. Someone I, I used to know, and I'm still kicking myself that I didn't think of this line, said that Hourly Daily is the soundtrack to the inner west. The only thing that's missing is the sound of the planes roaring over. <laughs> I love it. So, I mean, you know, Sydney is your home, but your other home is is Thrall. Yeah, Northern and Service of Wollongong, 2515. But despite all of this, you're Irish. And when I was when I was growing up, I heard a lot of Irish jokes. I, um, I yeah. remember one where it's like, you slap yourself and then you turn the wrong direction. Um, and that was that was the joke. Mm. Um, your brother told some Irish jokes, or you know, he learnt one at school and came came home with it. Told mum. Do you remember which one that was? No, I can't remember which one it was. I was very 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 young. So my mum's from Ardoin in Belfast, which was uh, a real sort of centre point of the tri- troubles. And my mum estimates yep. that she has two childhood friends left because the rest were gunned down in the streets. Um, and so my brother came home one day and told this Irish joke he'd heard at school, and I never had seen mum get so angry so quickly, and we couldn't understand why. And what are the origin of Irish jokes? Like, when did they come about? Yeah, so in the mid-19th century, uh, it was during the, the Great Famine, which was a deliberate act of genocide on Britain's part. Don't believe that it was just, you know, the crops went and people went hungry. The blight was the blight happened to all of Europe, but only Ireland starved. Um, and in order to legitimise these policies, the British um, began Irish jokes. Um, if you if you tell an Irish joke, you're reinforcing a genocidal legacy. But I mean, I understand that people sort of don't get that. But basically, so Punch magazine would start churning out characters like Mr. Maximius, which is derived from the word Simeon, and the which Irish is like is that monkey? Or something? Yeah, yeah. And the Irish Yahoo, which they described. Uh, and I'm sorry, I'm going to have to use a, um, a offensive word in here. My apologies. Um, a creature manifestly between the gorilla and the Negro. That's the actual quote. That's the actual they were, quote from yeah. Punch magazine. Wow. And so, I mean, these these jokes were kind of, I, I thought they were harmless, but they're justifying that kind of legacy. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, what you you wrote an essay about this that yeah. I found completely revelatory. I had no, next to no idea. Mm. And you're, you, you entitled it on tally sticks and trauma. So it was language dispossessed on tally sticks and trauma. And you can find it on Medium if you want to read about it. But what are tally sticks? What were they used for? So a tally stick, uh, it was in the newly introduced state school system in Ireland in 1831. One of the main aims was to teach English. I mean, this was for, for 500 years into um, a into uh, the active destruction of the Irish language being British policy. Um, and in that piece, you can read all the sort of various laws and statutes that made this happen. So a tally stick was the children in those schools, the new state schools, had to wear a piece of string around their neck that had um, a piece of stick on it, uh, a piece of wood. And if they were heard speaking Irish, a notch would be cut into it. And at the end of the day, their physical punishment would be in proportion to the number of notches they wore around their necks. Wow. And I mean... In your in your essay, you also mentioned that you, if you had an Irish surname, you couldn't, couldn't own, own land. property. Yeah. That was, I think, it was the seventeen forty five statute. So, as you know, speaking is do you do you pronounce it Gaelic? 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 So, speaking that was disloyal to the crown. Disloyal essentially, to the crown. Yeah, it was made. It was it was made illegal, mm. um, and it was used to overpower the Irish culture so that the British could have full dominance over the land. You know, I had a linguist on the show last week and he was saying exactly that that's the first thing you go for if you're trying to, you know, estrange people from their country and disempower them. You take the language first. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't really realise how bad the troubles were until recently because of your essay. And what what was your family's involvement in this? Like, not I don't want details because obviously it's a dangerous thing to talk about yeah, still to this go, day. Yeah, can't go into details with it. So, I mean, who was affected in your family? Every, in ways? Everyone. Everyone? Everyone. Uh, living in Ardoin, which was a, a working class, majority Catholic and nationalist area, um, it was they were victims of oppression and fear introduced, you know, many years before by the British, this imperialist force, but then maintained by Ulster Unionists. And the word Unionist isn't like what we think here in terms of like work rights. It was the Ulster Union. And they were um, largely, uh, Ulster Protestants largely led by the Orange Order, who saw themselves as Britons and it was it was a divide and conquer kind of thing. The the British, you know, you divide people, you um, 
treat one better than the other and then they're not going to work together to fight to become part of a united island again but um yeah so my uh grandmother was shot in the face by a, a bad sniper who missed whoever he was after uh when she was a young woman i didn't know this until long after she died um my grandfather who aspired to be an architect couldn't get a job above bricklayer because he was catholic there was segregation um in and you know and we're talking um last century um mm. up until not that long ago there was segregation in ireland which meant catholics or in northern ireland rather which in belfast which meant catholics could not be employed um three of my mum's brothers were interned in long Kesh without trial which was effectively a concentration camp one of them is a teenager he never got to go back to school um another one of my uncles was he had a brain injury his entire life because he was shot uh, he had a bullet to the brain when he was younger. Um, it was a completely unprovoked attack. None of them were armed. And two of his young friends died instantly in the attack. So it's very brutal. And so this piece was about um, my realisation that I'd always held it as a, a personal failing, as a shame that I can't speak Irish. Um, and the realisation that I'd read this amazing article by uh, a woman called Shireen Abian on Rookie Mag called Diaspora Trauma about the concept of inherited trauma. And I came to realise that the fact that I can't speak Irish is not my fault. It's a symptom of my trauma and of uh, imperialist oppression that continues to this day. It's still, it's Belfast, um, they, the media and the British like to tell you that everything's okay, but it's not it's still oppression. Um, internment without trial technically doesn't exist anymore, but they've found ways around it and it's used as a form of political censorship. Um, so yeah, it was this exploring the Irish history and the way the conflict conflict has impacted me and the way my mother's trauma um, has led to my dispossession from my culture because it's too hard for her to talk about. And the fact that she doesn't know the, the, the language either. And so she, did, you, did it take you a long time to actually learn about your history from your mum? Did she talk about it freely? Uh, yes and no. A Christmas Day glass of champagne, and she does. But uh, otherwise, no. I, knew, I know tidbits. I know about our family, but I don't. she doesn't go into much detail. Someone texted in, glory to Sinn Féin. Does that mean anything to you? Yeah, so Sinn Féin was the political wing of the IRA. Um, although I these days Republicans aren't too keen on Sinn Féin. They very much sort of betrayed the cause in many ways for uh, political power. Shaking the hand of the Queen in Belfast. Ooh. Okay, so we've got a song to take from Shining Bird. Mm -hmm. We're coming to the top of the hour, so Ooh. we're going to have to squeeze a couple in real quick. Yep. Because they're both so good, I just can't, we yeah. can't not. Let's just, let's just quick, very quickly like uh, dust over the Shining Bird one, which is basically, this is a song that to me sounds like my home in Wollongong, which it took me a lot of time to, um, to learn to love because as a teenager I hated it. Yeah. 
Something just feels different about Shining Bird. Something real homey about them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they sound very Australian, but also uh, for me, uh, they and also uh, Russell from the band, his earlier work, Russell W, um, sounded like home in a way I didn't realise anyone else felt. Uh, there's this, you know, the Illawarra, I mean, it's beautiful, the northern suburbs where we're from is stunning and it's sunny and it's it's one of the most gorgeous places yep, yep. in I the world. Love. You're Austinmere, yeah? Thoreau. Thoreau. They're from Austinmere, I'm from Thoreau. Mm. Um, same postcode. Uh, and <laughs> But there's this great sort of uh, underlying sorrow to the place and this interplay of the super industrial and the gorgeous natural. Um, and I found that in these songs in a way, like I said, I didn't realise anyone else had felt before. Um, so there we're sort of like bottlenecked between the mountain, the escarpment and the sea. And the escarpment is just this big looming presence. It's gorgeous, but it's this big looming presence that's always there and it's a rainforest, so it's dark and it's cold. And it makes the sun set sooner in the day because the sun has a obstruction in front of it sooner than sort of flatland would and every shining bird song has an escarpment in it and it has this sort of dark base this darkness underneath it and then every song also has the beach the sort of like tinkling pop stuff up above and uh, I spoke to Russell I tried to interview them a while ago for Mess and Noise and then I just had too many concepts come into my head and it you know turned into a novel and that's a you know all writers have one or two stillborns that they have to live with and that's that's mine. How many words deep are you on that? Oh dude I got 4,000 words deep, deep and still hadn't said everything um, and so that's I actually pitched it to <laughs> my editor was expecting it so I think it's about three years late now um, but and, and Russell said also that he puts a horizon in every song because where where you see the horizon regularly and uh, the the tankers, the steel tankers or the coal tankers going into Port Kembla are always sort of out there on the horizon and it feels like part of the personality of home. But again, those tankers, they just look so sad when you're looking out at them past a sunny beach. Uh, and he puts a horizon into every song, this sort of like drone that... And if you listen to their songs now, you'll be able to hear it, this drone that sort of goes through the entire song like a backbone. Wow, I've just noticed that Distant Dreaming starts with that. That's it, it That's starts with it and it goes the whole way through. Drone. You're kidding. Wow, mm. this is really enlightening. Yeah. Amazing. That's me, baby. <laughs> well, I mean, enlightenment aside, we've got to call an end of the show soon. We've got one more track. Yeah, boy. And, uh, yeah. look, I think, it's a, I think it's a fair choice. Yeah. We needed to let you have this because one of your great loves is rugby. Rugby league. Rugby league, you say rugby, sorry. that denotes union, which is the private schoolboy game. I'm so um, sorry. I Rugby league. That's all right. That's all right. I'll, <laughs> I'll talk to you after the show. Um, <laughs> yeah, rugby league. I adore it. Um, and I actually sort of properly got into it when I was 22, when I was working at that 
media place we were talking about before because the uh, – uh, or 21, um, because uh, St. George Illawarra had just won the 2010 grand final. And I had to just, you know, cover all these little stories about it. And suddenly all this hometown pride came welling up, this hometown pride that I didn't have before. Uh, so rugby league helped me find home. And suddenly all these gorgeous memories of dad wearing his daggy Illawarra Steelers uh, hat at every netball game that I hated. But, uh, and, and, this feeling of loss that the area does have that we've sort of been absorbed into the St. George Dragons. It's not a um, joint venture anymore. It's the St. George it's the St. George Dragons with Illawarra players. The only thing they let us keep in uh, 1998 when we merged was our socks. And they're gone now as well. Hmm. Um, so it's, yeah, and so there's, there is this sort of sense of loss there, this feeling that the NRL doesn't care about um, Wollongong. But for me, it was the NRL that helped me truly connect with Wollongong. And rugby league just it it um it sets my soul on fire. I love it. It yeah. gives me a purpose during the colder months. And you're going to be on fire up tomorrow. Going to be on fire up tomorrow. Yeah, yep. going to be on fire up with Stephen Chris. Yeah, and so this is a song that I've actually cheekily managed to get onto fire up twice. Oh, uh, yeah. Which makes up for the years on Backchat where I tried to get Heidi to play it, and she was never behind the idea. Understandably, <laughs> um, this is a song from uh, the '80s. The Illawarra Steelers were formed in 1980. Very working class team. It gave the region something to rally behind but their logo is like a comic book guy with their logo their club mascot and this song was the genuinely a uh, rugby league club song and my favorite part is the key change in the acapella section following the guitar solo um yeah so this is a song by a band called the victors as far as i'm aware it's their only track it's the illawarra steelers club song and it's called taste of steel Out of the Box and FBI 94.5, listen back to the podcast and it's going to be up later today and you can also listen to Confession Booth podcast, which is what A.H. Kayleigh puts together and here you go. It's the Illawarra Steelers club song. You can't go wrong with a missile strong Gonna give them the taste of steel We need it We're gonna make it happen right And when the whistle goes We're gonna get out there and fight It's our best game It's our own name It's our red crusade Come on, mighty woman Go
94.5.